following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Today, we're, we're, we're coming to the beginning of the last section in John's Gospel. And this is the section called the Passion. Uh, it, that word passion is not actually in the gospel, it just means suffering. And this is the period of time leading up to Jesus' death, leading up to and including his crucifixion. So usually the passion is the time from uh, Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Thursday night through to his death on a cross on the Friday afternoon, about 20 hours there. And uh, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, those 20 hours of Jesus' life get way more attention than anything else in, in all of Jesus' life and ministry. Those 20 hours are the big focus. In fact, in the whole Bible, even though the timeline of the Bible stretches thousands and thousands and thousands of years, those 20 hours still get by far the most attention because they are the most significant events of our faith. The, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. That's at the heart of the whole biblical story. So it's amazing the way 20 hours is really the, the, the big deal in the whole timeline of the Bible. And that's what we're now focusing on. Uh, each one of the Gospels tells the story in a different way. Uh, the events are the same, but different Gospel writers will bring out different things about the passion of Jesus uh, the events that go into his, his arrest, his trials, his suffering, his death, uh, because each of the gospel writers are looking at this from a different perspective and highlighting different things and coming at it from a different angle. And the beauty of having four testimonies is that you see the same events, but from four different perspectives, and it deepens out the picture for us. And so John's telling of the story of Jesus' passion is unique, and he highlights some things that the other gospel writers uh, don't highlight. For example, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, John doesn't have reference to Jesus praying that famous prayer where he says, God, not my will, but yours be done. John leaves that out. But he includes other things in that scene because he's wanting to show uh, some things that the other gospel writers are not. So what we'll do today is read chapter 18, uh, the first 27 verses of this chapter, which will take us through the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter's denial of Jesus. So here we go, John chapter 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The, name of, the, the servant's name was Malchus. 
Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then a detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who, was, who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. One of the saddest stories in, in the Bible, one of the most tragic, I think. Uh, so where we pick up the action is that Jesus had just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, with the, the 11 who are left as his disciples. He shared this meal with them in Jerusalem, in the upper room of a house there. They come to the end of the meal, and Jesus has prayed for his disciples. That's the prayer we looked at in John 17. And then as their time together ends there, they come out of this house, and they walk their way through the streets of Jerusalem, uh, outside the city, down the edge of the mountain that Jerusalem is built on. They cross over this little valley called the Kidron Valley, and they start coming up the other side, which is the Mount of Olives. They come about partway up the Mount of Olives, and there's a garden there called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's probably, the Garden of Gethsemane was probably a private garden somebody owned, and they would have given Jesus access to it for certain times. It was familiar to Jesus and his disciples. They'd spent a lot of time there. And so they come again into this garden on the night before Jesus dies. And while Jesus is there in the garden with his disciples, spending time with them, Judas arrives. And with Judas is a whole legion of people, a whole band of merry men with all kinds of paraphernalia. And we learn that, that with him is a detachment of Roman soldiers. So the, the Roman authorities had dispatched a, a legion or a force of soldiers with a commander. They obviously felt like the peace was threatened sufficiently, that this warranted a detachment of soldiers to support the Jewish authorities. So they sent these soldiers with Judas. Then you have the temple authorities themselves, the temple police. They've got a band of guys there. Uh, and then also some Pharisees, representatives of the Pharisees come with Judas as well. And they've got weapons, they've got torches, they've got lanterns, they've got all this paraphernalia. The impression that you get is that this is a massive overreaction to the actual threat that's in front of them. A bunch of peasants hanging out in a garden, and they send in the cavalry. 
And these guys come there and they're, they're standing. And, and, and throughout the whole passion story of John, the impression that we're going to get is that Jesus is always in control. And, and you see this time and time again. He maintains the control. So Jesus goes out to meet them. And Jesus speaks first. And he says, who is it that you want? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds to them with a simple statement. He says, I am he. Now, the translation of that phrase blunts the force of the words a little bit because the word he is not actually there in the original language. In the Greek, what Jesus says is simply, I am. And that's a different type of statement, isn't it? Those of you that are familiar with the early part of the Old Testament, are you hearing some resonances there? Where, where do you hear that, that statement, I am, in the Old Testament? This is the naming of God. This is the very first time, in Exodus 3, the very first time that God names himself in the Old Testament, in the story, is when he appears to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses says to him, well, who shall I say that you are? When I go and talk to the Israelites and I tell them that you've sent me to free them, who, who shall I say that you are? What's your name? And God says, I am who I am. And what he actually says is Yahweh. It's just, it's, it's just breath. It's just Yahweh. And that, that means I am who I am. Uh, go and tell them I am sent you. And so throughout the Old Testament story, that's God's name. He, this is the God of Israel. He is Yahweh. He is I am. This is how he reveals himself to people. I am, I am, I am, I am. And you, and you trace that theme right through, and then you get to the Gospel of John, and you have Jesus start saying things like, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am the water of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door to the sheep pen. I am. And then here at the beginning of his passion... He makes this unequivocal statement. He doesn't put another word with it. He just says, I am. I think Jesus is doing a lot more than just identifying himself for his captors. He's identifying himself deeply as God. This is, I think, the most unequivocal statement in the Gospels of Jesus' identity as God. That he says, I am. He takes the name of Yahweh. He identifies himself with God. He identifies himself as the God of Israel, the creator God, God of the cosmos, as well as the God of Israel. Jesus says, I am. And it's appropriate then the very next thing you see is that all of this, the, the, these people who have gathered to arrest, they all fall down in fear of him. And John must have taken great delight in recording that, I think, that, that you have almost like a scene of worship. Now, whether or not they fully understood what Jesus was saying, probably not. But appropriately, they fall down in fear and reverence as if before a God. It's a little taste here, I think, of the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And you get a little taste of it in the Garden of Gethsemane, where a group of people who have not come to faith in Christ still bow down in reverence when Jesus says, I am. It reinforces, I think, this deep, profound identity of Jesus as the God of Israel. And so Jesus says again, who is it that you want? And again, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Jesus says, I told you, 
that I am. And then he instructs them to let his disciples go. That they've come for Jesus, and he says, you've got to let these, these men go, they're nothing to do with this. And as far as we know, uh, they do. The other disciples aren't arrested, even though Peter impetuously grabs his sword and, and charges in, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. He still doesn't seem to be arrested for that. Uh, maybe because Jesus heals the guy's ear, we don't know. But Jesus is the only one arrested. Jesus is the only one bound, and he's taken off to the high priest's home, which is where the beginning of his trial starts. So Jesus is taken back into Jerusalem at this point to the high priest's resident. The name of the high priest is Caiaphas. But the first person that Jesus appears before in the high priest's home is a guy called Annas. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And it seems like even though Annas is not officially the high priest, that he's still got a huge influence. He still casts a big shadow over the high priesthood. And so he, he sort of has this unofficial hearing. Uh, he summons Jesus and there's kind of an, an informal conversation before Jesus officially stands trial before Caiaphas. Meanwhile, the other disciples are, are basically dispersed. And we don't hear much from them again, sadly, in the rest of the Passion story. But we do. John follows the action with Peter. He says, Peter and one other disciple, and that's probably John. It's probably the disciple, even though he's not named. Peter and one other disciple follow along at a safe distance behind Jesus, behind his, his captors. Peter's trailing there with John. And they come all the way to the high priest's home. And then John, we learn, surprisingly, is known to the high priest. Somehow he's got access. So John gets to go in. And he comes back out and then he talks to the servant girl and he gets Peter in. So then both of these guys are in a courtyard type place. And think of an open courtyard, but still not inside the residence. Still not quite inside the high priest's home, but they're out in this courtyard warming their hands around a fire. And probably, maybe, from where they were, they could perhaps see inside Caiaphas' house. They might have even been able to see Jesus there as he stood trial and gave testimony there. And here they are outside. And as Peter and John are being led in to this complex, the servant girl who's leading them in turns to Peter and says, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And Peter responds with a statement, I am not. Some of the most tragic words in all of Scripture. This blatant denial of his association with Jesus. And then, of course, Peter continues to deny Jesus another two times over the next hour or two or three that Jesus was there. Peter again says, I don't know this man, when he gets asked, until eventually the rooster crows, as Jesus predicted. It's an awful story, but the way that John tells it is masterful because he juxtaposes these two scenes together. He juxtaposes the scene of Jesus before Annas, giving this open testimony about himself. And Jesus doesn't hide anything. Jesus says, I've spoken openly before the world. I've asked those who heard me. I, I haven't held anything back. It's all out on the table. And Jesus is being transparent about his identity. And then outside, Peter is disavowing any knowledge of Jesus at all. So Jesus is denying nothing. Peter is denying everything. And John sets those two stories side by side, cutting in and out, so that we see the glaring contrast between these two men. And that contrast, I think, runs even deeper than what happens at Caiaphas' house. You come back to the statement that Jesus made in the garden, where when he was asked, 
of his identity, he said, I am. The truest and deepest statement of Jesus' identity. I am. Identifying himself with the God of Israel. And then fast forward to Peter at Caiaphas' house. When he's asked if he has any knowledge of Jesus, if he's one of these disciples, he says, I am not. Two completely opposite statements, which represent, I think, two completely different mindsets, ultimately two different ways of being and living in the world. Jesus makes a statement identifying himself truly and fully and openly. And Peter denies any knowledge of Jesus. And really what Peter is doing, I think, is denying more than just his his association with Jesus. He's denying who he is as a disciple of Jesus. Peter has spent several years apprenticing this guy, apprenticing this rabbi, following him, learning his way. Peter's denying all that. He's denying his relationship with Jesus as one of Jesus' closest, most intimate friends. Peter's just denying all of that. He's denying the mantle of leadership that Jesus has given him. Jesus has said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. You're going to be one of the leaders in this movement that's going to come forth from me. He's given Peter this future calling as a leader. He's a close friend. Peter just denies that whole deal. He denies the whole lot. And in doing that, he's really denying himself. I think this is not so much about Peter denying Jesus. This is about Peter denying himself. It's about Peter denying who he is in relationship with Jesus. Jesus makes a statement, I am, that discloses his true identity. Peter makes a statement, I am not, where he denies his true identity in relationship with Jesus. And he pretends to be someone else. And I wonder if in those words of Peter, those tragic words, I am not, whether you can hear any resonances of your own life, whether you can hear echoes of the way in which we do the same thing. Not literally saying those words, but through the way we live, through who we are in the world, through the way we relate. Whether we end up saying the same thing as Peter, I am not. And denying who we really are. Denying our true identity, denying our true self, pretending to be something else, someone else. Thomas Merton, a Christian author, talks about how every person develops a false self. Over time, this false self grows up around our true self. Our true self never really disappears, but we just bury it underneath layers and layers and layers and layers of a false constructed self that we project to the rest of the world. The false self is what we want others to see and what what we're comfortable uh, projecting publicly to the rest of the world. And it emerges because as we, especially in our formative years, as we grow up, we don't feel like our true self is really going to cut it. We don't really feel like our true self is enough, that our true self's not really going to be approved. Our true self is not really going to be liked or approved of or worthy. Our true self's not going to really be able to achieve what we need to be able to achieve. Our true self is not going to be acceptable to the world. And so we, we distort and we bend and we warp our true self into some other version of ourselves, which is just a false self. It's a pseudo-self. It's not really who we are. But we do it to conform to the expectations around us, often from significant authority figures in our lives, parents, teachers, leaders, coaches, sometimes pastors. We feel the weight of expectations, sometimes unhealthy expectations, to be like this, to do this, to achieve at a certain 
level, which is not truly who we are, to make certain types of decisions, to go in a certain type of direction. And out of a desire to please and a desire to be accepted, we start going down that path. And what we're starting to do is to say, I am not, to our true identity. What we're starting to do is cover up I am with a whole lot of I am nots. Because we want to be approved of and we want to be liked and we face the fear that our true self is not going to be approved of and liked. And we face massive social pressure from our peers to be a certain kind of person, to to act in certain ways, to like this and not like that, to go there and not go there. And this pressure is often excruciating and it leads to the emergence of a false self. And often that false self, we spend so much time constructing it, so much time maintaining it, we've lost touch with who the true self really is, with who we truly are. And it gets exhausting just trying to live a certain version of ourselves to other people. And we end up being just like Peter, kind of pretending that we're someone else, pretending and denying who we really are to the point that it's hard to even tap back into that true self at times. I saw a documentary this past week on 60 Minutes. A 15-year-old girl in Canada, Amanda Todd, who ended up committing suicide because of online bullying and blackmail. And it's such a sad story because it started out so innocently with with a girl who enjoyed uh, playing guitar and singing, and she posted some clips of her singing online. And this just went on, and she got a webcam, and she's getting more of an online presence, and then she started to be noticed by the wrong types of people online who ended up blackmailing her, taking advantage of her, and leading her down an awful and seductive path. And you could see the way in which here was a girl who who innocently desired to be liked. She wanted, in 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 an innocent way, she wanted attention. And this is not to excuse anything that was done to her because it was horrific. But you see that that through that kind of manipulation, she was led to develop a kind of false self. And social media just perpetuates this, doesn't it? It's really the most fertile ground for the construction of a false self because it's probably the easiest area in which to hide the true self, to hide who we truly are and just create an impression that we project to the world. And this is what she was led to do. And you could see this wasn't who she really was. It wasn't who she was underneath. She was a beautiful, sweet girl. And, but she was manipulated into constructing a false self where you get to the point, I don't think she really knew who she was anymore. That's an extreme example, but I think it's indicative of the problem we all face, that we lose touch with who we really are. Because underneath there is a true self. We all have a true self. The, 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 the words the Bible uses for this is the image of God. We're created in the image of God. We have a true self created to, to love God and to love others. It's the unique you. It's the true I. It's the true I am. And it's there. We have it. It's your uniqueness. It's your preciousness. It's your belovedness in God. But we, we really dishonor ourselves by allowing this false self to grow up and then exhausting ourselves, trying to maintain it. And what happens, sadly, for many people, you might be in this category, is it just gets too exhausting to maintain the false self, and we crash and burn. We spiral into depression and despair and self-rejection because it's just too hard. Our soul gets completely eroded from trying to just keep up this false version of ourself before other people, and it just our false self collapses, and with it, our whole self-identity. We don't, we don't know who else we are. We don't know who to be anymore. 
and people live in this state of total self-rejection because they've lost touch with their true self. Now, I know I'm being a little symbolic with Peter's words, but I think it represents something that is deeply true of us as humans. That while we have a true self created in God, we develop a false self to try and gain the approval of others. And don't think that this is something that only affects people who are really timid, meek, and mild. I think some of the most extreme examples of the false self are people who can be very assertive and domineering and authoritative with their personalities. Because it can be, again, just masking the true self. It's a way of running away from our true selves and putting up barriers and controlling our world so that no one ever really gets close enough to know who we truly are. I don't know whether this resonates or not with your experience, but I think it's true. I think to a greater or lesser degree, this is each of our story. And we're living out this false self continually and struggling to pick up the trail of our true self and get back to that. But I think, thankfully, in this story, we also read the seeds of hope. And there is great hope for the way back out of this, to to get out of a way of living out of a false self, to come back to live out of our true and genuine self created in the image of God. And these words, I think, are found in this interaction that Jesus has with Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter gets out his sword. He cuts off the ear of the high priest. And look at Jesus' response to him in verse 11. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This image of the cup is really interesting. Uh, In the Old Testament, it crops up quite a few times. The the poets and the prophets of Israel mention this image. There's a picture of of God with a cup in his hand, a cup of wine and spices. But it's not a positive image. The image of the cup is an image of judgment. It's an image of the wrath of God. Let me read you just one place where this crops up in Jeremiah 25. Uh, Verse 15 Uh, Jeremiah says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So this is an image of, of God's judgment. It's an image of God pouring out his wrath upon the nations and giving the wicked of the world. Uh, the, the cup of his wrath to drink. But in the surprising story of God, Jesus comes along and in the Gospel of John, he says, shall I not drink this cup that the Father has given me? And this beautiful picture emerges where God is about to give this cup of judgment to humanity, to, to us, to drink because we deserve it. And then at the last moment, he takes the cup away from, from the nations and he hands this this cup to his own beloved son. And Jesus drinks it. He drinks the cup of God's judgment. He drinks the cup of the wrath of God down to its very dregs. That's what happened on the cross. That Jesus drank himself the cup of God's judgment that was taken away from us. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That Jesus has absorbed God's judgment in our place. He's absorbed sin from our lives, and he has crucified our false self. This is what Jesus has done on the cross for you and I. He's put the false self to death. All the masks that we spend our lives wearing, all the expectations that we try to conform to, all the ought-tos and the shoulds and the expectations that we constantly try and squeeze ourselves into, Jesus died for all that. 
He died to crucify all of that. That was nailed to him on the cross. That false self that you are living out of was crucified with Christ. And Jesus died that we might have a new identity, which in reality is a reclaiming of our true identity. It's a renewal of the image of God. It's a new identity that's grounded in Christ. That's, that's who you truly are. When, when we talk about the true self, when we talk about our identity in Jesus, this is not just a kind of form of self-expression. You know, this is not like Oprah Winfrey, live your best life kind of stuff. You know, that often people can talk about, you know, being who you are and living true to yourself, but they can talk about it in a way that really just is very humanistic. Just self-expression, self-determination, self-promotion. That's not the gospel vision of the true self. The gospels picture our true self as a self deeply anchored in the love of Jesus. That we know who we are only when we know whose we are. We belong to God. That's how we gain identity in the world. This is what Jesus has died to bring you is an identity. To take away all the layers of your false self. And to free that true self that God has created you to have, your created self, to free that, to live, so that you don't need to live anymore out of a false self, but you can live freely out of your true self because of the cross of Christ, because your old self's crucified with him. Now, it's one thing to know that, and it's one thing to have our false self objectively put to death, but it's another thing to learn to live out of the true self, isn't it? And there's many of us in this room who know, and we, we cherish the fact that Christ has died for our old self, our false self. And yet we find it really, really hard to still live out of our truest and deepest self. Because the false self still is. It still shadows us around, still follows us around and keeps gnawing away at us. I think this is a lifelong process of learning to live deeply and fully out of our true self. And it starts, I think, by identifying the ways that your false self is surfacing. Identifying the ways that you're saying with Peter, I am not. What, what does that look like for you? What are the ways in which just in everyday conversations and interactions and relationships, you are saying, I am not. You're denying your true self. Trying to be something else. Trying to be cleverer than you are. Trying to be more competent than you really are. Trying to be funnier than you are. Trying to be a certain type of person trying to put on a bit of an act, trying to play a role? What are the ways in which your false self is surfacing? I know for me, when I, when I came on board at Shaw, started working here as an associate pastor, I was working with Jeff Vines, who was the senior pastor at the time. And Jeff and I are totally different personalities. Jeff's a very uh, high energy, big picture kind of guy, very big, bold, strong personality, leads from in front, that kind of person, very charismatic, dynamic, magnetic kind of person. Uh, and that's not me. I'm, I'm more low-key style, uh, a little bit understated, more kind of lead from beside type of style. Like, I, I, you know, my preaching style is different. There's a lot of differences there. But I found, honestly, when I, when I started working with Jeff, that my tendency was just to try and be Jeff. And, and, and we do this. It's natural because we try and emulate the people around us, people we, uh, you know, le- are in leadership and so on. Uh, and that's what I found is I was trying to preach like Jeff and I was trying to lead like Jeff and I was trying to even talk like Jeff sometimes, which is hard when he uses a Tennessee accent. But, you know, I was trying to basically be Jeff. And that's what I thought a leader was. And that's what I thought a pastor was. That's what I thought a preacher was. And I got to a point of being thoroughly exhausted by that and really feeling like the tension uh, 
between who I was trying to be and who God had genuinely made me to be became an unbearable tension in my life. And through some wise counseling, uh, I've started to slowly undo that. And, and start. And I feel like I'm only just starting, but starting to gain a sense of who is my true self. And for me, you know, what this journey has looked like is trying not to be a certain role, but just to simply be who I am in that role. Does that make sense? So in other words, trying not to be a pastor as much as I'm just trying to be me and who I am. Trying not to be a preacher as much as I am just to be my true self. Trying not to be a leader as much as me because we're not the signs on our door, are we? We're not the roles. We're not the titles. That's not you. You are who you are. So own that identity in Christ. Live out of that. I am the true self that God's made me to be as a pastor, as a preacher, as a leader. And it's, I feel like I'm still just starting out on that journey in, in many ways. Sometimes I still feel like I open my mouth and Jeff Vines jumps out. You know, it still happens, and that's natural. You know what I'm talking. You can apply this to your own life. I hope your story is obviously very different, but we do this, don't we? And the journey of the Christian life is learning to be comfortable in our own skin, uh, who we are in Christ, and living out of that true self. Uh, And that means embracing our weaknesses as well, because the true self is not a perfect self. That's. That's the new creation. That's when Jesus comes back. But for now, when, I'm, when I talk about the true self, the true I am, it's not a perfected self. That's not reality. It's who you truly are with your unique giftedness and temperament and strengths and weakness. And the classic play of the false self is to cover over weakness and to overdo our strengths, to try and overcompensate. But the, the true self is comfortable in weakness and Not that we don't work on things, but we're comfortable in our incompleteness. And we're okay with being on a journey. We're comfortable sitting in brokenness and even allowing others to see that brokenness. Being vulnerable. Vulnerability is a key part of learning to live out of our true self. It feels like a massive weakness to be vulnerable. But it is in fact a great strength because it takes tremendous courage, I think, to be truly vulnerable with ourselves and with others. So this is the journey of living out of our truest and deepest self. And every day, trying to identify how is the false self surfacing. Maybe if you're the journaling kind, even write that stuff down. How, is my, how, my, how did my false self pop up today? And then what would it have looked like if in that conversation I had been my true self? I had lived out of my created self in the image of God. What, what might that conversation have looked like? What might that interaction what might that moment alone with my own thoughts how might that have gone differently with my own self-talk if I was courageous daring enough to embody my truest self in Christ to truly say I am and name that name who you are obviously our I am looks different to Jesus I am he is God but we're in Christ and we have our own I am And God's calling us to live confidently in the I am space and continually say no to the I am nots, to identify them and then to let them go and stop living in ways, thinking in ways, acting and relating in ways that just keep saying, I am not, I am not, I am not. But let that true self be shown and be seen and define the way that we live. 
So as we uh, draw this to a conclusion, I want to invite you to do a little reflective practice this morning, something a little bit different, and we're going to head into a time of communion, which is a wonderful space in which to consider that our false self has died with Christ, that he's given us new identity, that our life is hidden now in Christ with God. Uh, You've got these little bits of paper that you've got in your bulletin, and this is just if you want to do this and if it's helpful, and it may or may not be, but I want you to consider... What does the I am look like for you? On one side of that bit of paper, you've got I am, and you might want to just jot down underneath that, what, are, what, what is that? Can you identify your truest self? Now, you may want to write down or think of specific things about you that are your uniqueness and your uh, distinctiveness, but you may just want to write down things that express your belovedness in Christ. I am loved. I am chosen. I am blessed. I am secure. You know, these things, you know what is important for you to hear. You know what is deeply true of you and about you and what your soul most needs to really have, it, have settle on it. Uh, jot a few things down under I am, and then if you're willing, jot a few things down under I am not. How does your false self surface? How are you playing Peter's game? How are you denying, not, not necessarily denying Jesus overtly, but denying who you are, who God has made you to be in relationship with him? How, what does it look like? And then spend some time as we take communion, as we gather, as it were, around the Lord's table. Take some time to ask God to let the I am nots fade away from your life and to let those be less and less and less of who you are and ask Him for the courage and the strength and the grace of His Spirit to live more confidently in the I am, to name and to live what is deeply and fully true of you and about you. And God, I believe, over time, if you ask him genuinely, will give you the strength to be that. That's who he created you to be. That is desperately who he wants you to be. Let's pray, and we'll go through this time together. God, I thank you that you have, you have spoken over our life those words, I am. Not just who you are, God, but who we are in relationship with you. Thank you that we are your children. Thank you that we are so deeply loved by you. And thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, each unique, uh, each with strengths and weaknesses. But we are who you've made us to be, God. And, and we, just, we want to be open, Lord, about the ways in which we've felt like the image of God in us is somehow not enough or not enough for everybody else. And we've denied it and we've disowned it and we've covered it up with a whole bunch of stuff. And this morning, Jesus, we want to say that, that we want to take away the layers of rubble that have accumulated over the top of our true self. And we want you, Lord, by your grace, to lift away the debris that's just piled up over our true self, over the true I am. All the I am nots. Lord, we just ask that you'd reach down, just take them away. And free us, Lord Jesus, to be who we already are in you. We thank you that we don't have to go looking for our true self, but it is already within us because we're created by you. Thank you that we don't have to achieve it or... or Try and reach out for it, God. It's who we already are. Help us to simply be free to live in your love, free to live in your grace. Help us to stop saying, I am not, and to start saying and to start living, I am. Give us the strength to do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.